This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser with Kaylee Lines. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And this magazine, this issue is all about 2020. It is the year ahead issue from politics and power and what's ahead for the global economy and markets to technology and trends in the luxury space and a lot more. So for better or worse, U.S. and global markets have become inextricably entwined with American politics. Here to explain, Michael Regan, he keeps a watch on the financial markets for us. So what do you, we do know, right? We watch the election so carefully in terms of what it might mean for investors. Right. Yeah. It's this kind of awkward position that a lot of investors and analysts have been thrust into is now they have to sort of have a sideline as a political scientist and kind of gauge where the tea leaves in the politics uh, world are headed. It is, it really is turning into a market of its own almost. And, you know, there's these prediction sites that you can track sort of where the, the betting community believes uh, the, the horse race lies in politics. Well, tell us about one strategist that you actually went to visit, right? Because you start off your story with that. And I think it tells. tells yeah, it really yeah. Well. It's, it's funny. Lori Calvacina at RBC. Uh, and she wrote in a note how she's she looks at these uh, political polling charts, almost like stock charts right now. And, um, you know, uh, she's looking at Elizabeth Warren as like a momentum stock because she's really rising <laughs> in the polls. Right? And uh, she's she's said she would advise shorting Joe Biden uh, in my comrade from the University of <laughs> Delaware, unfortunately, but just because he's waning in, in momentum in the polls. But, you know, what's really fascinating is that so much is at stake with politics right now, because obviously when President Trump was elected, you know, politics ruled everything in global markets for, you know, ever since basically. Uh, But now some of these Democratic uh, candidates are really have platforms that are really threatened to sort of upend a lot of the main industries in the U.S. Right. Well, they're talking about Medicare for all, right? That's going to have implications on all of those publicly held healthcare plans. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why Elizabeth uh, Warren's ascent in the polls is really has Wall Street kind of scrambling to try to decipher what it could possibly mean because her plans are are all over the place, so broad reaching um, that, A, you have to kind of figure out, well, what will her priorities be uh, and what will she sort of be able to get to accomplish? Uh, And a lot depends, obviously, on what the the Congress looks like Mm -hmm. uh, after the next election. But a a hypothetical uh, Elizabeth Warren presidency has Wall Street scrambling to try to figure out all the ripple effects. Uh, Obviously, as you said Medicare for all uh, would have major implications for the healthcare sector. Um, she also wants to raise the minimum wage, which would pressure a lot of margins at, at some companies, but it would also provide a lot more spending in the economy. So there'd be winners and losers in, in that scenario. Um, obviously, she's talked uh, about getting tougher on the banks. Um, the thinking is that her uh, SEC would be mm-hmm. very much uh, a pit bull of an SEC. Right. Uh, and on and on and on. Uh, there's so many different ripple effects that. Um, um, it's it's a mad dash to try to sort it all out. What's really interesting is, as of yet, um, there doesn't seem to be much of her uh, ascent priced into markets so far. And, and analysts are saying, well, look for that to potentially change maybe early in the first quarter, around mm-hmm. February or March, when mm-hmm. we start to get those primary results in. And it really will then become more clear who the front runner is in the Democratic race, because right now it really is a horse race. Well, there's still a long way to go, right? And of course, many people say that regardless of how far left she may be now, if it does get to the general election where mm-hmm. she is the Democratic candidate, she's going to have to move more to a middle. So I wonder if maybe you don't want to overprice everything she's saying now, because again, we have so far to go and you, stances could change. Yeah. 
yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You know, the, the the assumption is you run very far left to win that primary, then you move to the middle. Elizabeth Warren's a bit of a wild card. I don't know how far to the middle you can expect her to move. Again, I think it a lot goes back to how much she can get through Congress. So some analysts are looking at, well, what can she accomplish through executive orders mm-hmm. or through existing channels in the executive branch rather than get through Congress? Um, so there's a lot of moving pieces. And this is an analysis I think that's going to keep going on and on. Mike, take a, take a step back, because I, I think it used to be that we thought if there was a Democrat in the White House ultimately, that it wasn't good for business, right? And that if there was a Republican, it was. And that's the markets would play off of that. But in years, in recent years, we haven't seen that. Like, tell me what happens if it's a Democrat versus a Republican. Is it all good? Is well, it there, yeah, there's so many different variables and scenarios you can run. You know, is it a, a Democrat who's got, who has uh, a, a full Democratic Senate and House behind them or a, a mixed yeah. a split chamber? And there's so many different scenarios you can run historically. I don't put a lot of faith in any of them because every situation is so unique. And the candidates are unique. The the economic uh, environment going into the elections are unique. So I think we've kind of uh, gotten into this uncharted territory with President Trump doing stuff that no president has done before, aggressively hitting uh, China with tariffs, threatening them elsewhere. So he he kind of broke what, what I think would be the the paradigm of the past. And you have to kind of just play the cards on the on the table now. Yeah, absolutely. And to the point of President Trump, you also mentioned in your speech that you can't uh, extract politics from talk of a recession right now. And, right. and, and a lot of that is due mm-hmm. to the president's policies, specifically in regard to the trade war, which, as we know, is impacting his base pretty substantially. Those areas are feeling the most pain. But I, a lot of the strategists we've talked to on Bloomberg Television say that because of going into 2020, he's not going to run a recession. That could mean that he is going to kind of have to shift his strategy in a lot of ways over the course of the next year as we run up to the election. What could that look like for the market? Right. That's another huge wild card. I mean, obviously, we've seen uh, what appears to be progress on the China-U.S. trade tensions. Um We've seen that movie before, and it, it sort of, you know, has ended badly. But this time, uh, people are kind of putting in uh, a lot of faith in exactly what you're talking about, that uh, he can't ratchet up ten- tensions much more in 2020 without risking a, a global recession or a U.S. recession, basically. I mean, the, the manufacturing sector uh, in many countries is already in recession. Right. Uh, if you look at the, the models, I think the Bloomberg economics model, it pulls in a lot of different uh, mm-hmm. inputs. It's about a 27% chance of a recession in the next 12 months. And it was higher earlier this it was, year. It was right? higher, yeah. Uh, the Fed's model is much simpler. It just looks at the yield mm-hmm. curve. About a 35% chance there. That's Mike Regan, who keeps a watch on the financial markets for us, just reminding us how closely connected are the financial markets and, of course, those presidential elections. So it's a big week for Boeing. Of course, we got earnings from the company. And more importantly, we got an update. Uh, the company mapping out a big boost in 737 Max output. Justin Bachman writes about what to expect from Boeing in 2020. 2019, Justin, has not been a great year for Boeing, to say the least. No, to say the least. Uh, their best-selling product was grounded for most of the year following two um, fatal accidents that killed 346 people. Um, you know, airlines are not taking this. The, you know, no, no regulators letting it in their airspace. Um, so it's really been a, a tough, tough year for Boeing in, in terms of the MAX. And Justin, it's not just now the fact that they need to get the planes back in the air. It's that they need to get travelers mm-hmm. willing to go back on the planes, right? Right. Their airline customers really need to face up to how much of a public uh, fear and concern is there about this airplane. And, you know, the old saying is that the 
you know, the safest airplane is probably one that has the most attention to it. But at the same time, a, a lot of the public doesn't pay attention to what they're flying. But in this case, they might. Uh, there's there's good evidence from surveys and such that people will be asking and will be very cognizant of what they're flying and want to know, is it a MAX? If it's not a MAX, they probably don't care. But they do want to know if it's going to be that aircraft. And, and if it is, what do airlines have to do to get those people comfortable that it's safe to fly again? Well, let's talk about what the airlines are doing because it's interesting. They're going to lay it out, right? If you make a, a reservation, they're going to let you know if you're going to be flying one of these jets. Right, yeah. The, the three U.S. airlines that have it, Southwest American and United, um, all say that they are going to be very transparent in this process and they want everybody to know up front when you're buying a ticket if that flight is going to be on a 737 MAX. Um, and, and the idea, it's practical because they don't want people getting on the plane and then having sort of a freak out incident um, you know, on the aircraft with the crew social media, et cetera, uh, it, it makes a lot more sense to separate those folks early in the process or as early as possible, even if that's at the airport at check-in and somebody finds out, uh, they're going to let you rebook uh, without a fee or penalty to go on another aircraft if you're not comfortable flying on the MAX. And we don't know how long that's going to last. Uh, they've been a little bit hesitant to disclose how long that policy will last. But I think for several months at least, it's it's going to be the case where you're allowed to rebook if you don't want to fly it. And how much of a burden does do the airlines have to bear in restoring confidence in this jet, or is that mostly Boeing's prerogative at this point? It's definitely a shared responsibility, but I think what happens is once the government say, you know, in the U.S. and Europe and China, et cetera, that this airplane can fly and the airlines are very eager to get it back into service, for financial reasons, then it becomes the airline issue because they're dealing with their own customers and their own customers' fears and concerns and questions. And, you know, Boeing is going to be involved in, in doing what airlines ask them to do. But I really think that it, at that point, it, it becomes an airline-centered issue of dealing with their own customers. So that's probably where we're going to see the most outreach and the most communications. I think one of the folks that you talked to, I think it was a consultant talking about how maybe the airlines need to have their own executives and maybe their executives' families and maybe Boeing executives and Boeing's executives' families actually take some right. of the flights um, to show that you know they are supporting uh, this jet and feel comfortable flying it. Right. I, I think that's another thing we'll see. Definitely the the CEOs of those three airlines and, and probably in Canada as well uh, will fly on the jet and make it very publicly known that they're they're comfortable flying on the jet. May have families. Uh, I think I think you're going to see a very broad based media outreach in terms of you know telling everybody this is what has been done. This is the the appropriate certification process, and this is why our pilots are comfortable. And you're going to see a message from everybody in the industry that the plane is now safe to fly. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think also they just need to fly it. it it's got to go back into service, and it has to, to fly mm -hmm. without incident. And over time, people will you know, gradually start to, to come back around to it. And at least that's the thinking. Justin, how much of this is about the 737 MAX, that particular plane? And then how much of this is that Boeing has to restore its reputation as a company? Right. Yeah, Boeing is, is facing a lot of issues, including, you know, a grand jury inquiry in Washington. Their whole certification process is under review by the DOT. So there are some other issues that remain after the 737 MAX is ungrounded. Um, and, and that has, you know, bearing on a new, they're working on a new plane called the 777X, a wide body. Uh, and that was supposed to fly in 2020. It's going to be probably 2021 now. 
But that whole process is going to come in for another very vigorous round of scrutiny when they have a new plane that they're putting through. And so I think, I, I think for Boeing, there's a long, long tail of, of aftermath for the, this incident, even after the plane is back in service. Because I think that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, whenever a company is going through crisis, you wonder about the culture within and whether or not the problem that allowed um, this situation to occur, has it been fixed? And I guess that's what we need to get to the bottom of with, with Boeing. Right. And I, and I think there are a lot more uh, questions coming in terms of last week, Boeing made a, a big change in, in management, mm-hmm. replacing their um, commercial airplanes chief. You know, the, it's an open question about whether other executives and other changes at Boeing are, are forthcoming. Uh, after the MAX is, is back in the air, you know, that doesn't mean that the, the end of the case for Boeing by any means. And of course, in addition to the management changes, we also got earnings from Boeing this week. And a big part of their commentary was that they think this plane's going to be back in the air in the fourth quarter. They're actually mm-hmm. ramping up their output. And we know there's 4,500 orders in the backlog. Do people still want this jet? Is, is that really that they ha- are right to have that optimistic lens? The airlines, right. right. Is it still in demand, right? Because it's been so important to Boeing. Right. Yeah, it really is. We, we hear all these headlines for this year, but, but we also forget that this airplane was pretty revolutionary on the economics, um, you know, roughly 20% less fuel burn. So if you're an airline operator, this, this airplane is very much needed and you very much want it to operate the way that it was, you know, sold and purchased. You, you bought this thing for a very clear economic reason and you want to capitalize on that. Um, so the flight issues, that's been a very big negative. But longer term, I mean, airlines like Southwest, this is the core of that operation for many, many years to come. So, Justin, would you fly it? Tough question. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think so. It's 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 one of those things of do you want to be the first one on it? And like we were saying before, this this airplane is so scrutinized and. You know, yeah. that's the airplane that's probably the safest in the sky. So I don't think it's a question of does it fundamentally have problems. But I have talked with pilots who say there are certain places they won't fly it. Uh, they don't mm-hmm. think pilot training standards are the same. So I think that's another issue that people will will have to grapple with. That's Justin Bachman, a reporter in Dallas, with an update on Boeing this week and the latest on the 737 MAX. Safe to say 2020 is turning out to be the year of the streaming wars. No doubt about that. Let's get to Lucas Shaw, knows all about this. He joins us from Los Angeles. Um, streaming wars is right. What we Is it four new services coming online? Four new services coming online in a 12-month period. So we know that the three biggest right now are Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu. Netflix, far and away the largest. Amazon, the second biggest in pure number terms, but in terms of users, less clear because you get it for free with Prime. And then, and then Hulu, third in part, that's only in the U.S. The, the new players are Apple TV Plus, launching November 1st, Disney Plus, launching November 12th, and then HBO Max and Comcast's Peacock will both debut sometime next year. The thinking on HBO Max is probably in the spring with some testing before then, and Peacock just sometime before the Olympics in Tokyo next summer. And which one of these is going to be the most formidable opponent to Netflix, whether it's on pricing or on content? The perception among people in Hollywood, at least, and I think on Wall Street, is that Disney Plus is the most formidable, uh, in part because of its pricing. Six ninety nine is quite affordable, and then just what it has. You know, Disney operates the most powerful movie studio in the world. It has these brands: Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and Disney that mean a lot to customers, mean a lot to kids, and so the the kind of the on ramp for Disney Plus seems quite easy. It's going to be very hard if you're a parent not to buy this, just to save money. A little bit because you're probably having to rent or buy movies over and over again to show your kids. 
That being said, I am most interested, I think, in HBO Max、mm. because Disney Plus could still be an additive to Netflix. It's cheap and it's targeted. It's not trying to be everything. You know, Netflix's enemy. In a sense, is cable. It wants to replace cable television with internet television, and it have Netflix be the number one network. Disney Plus is a little bit more like a cable network in the traditional sense. You stick with that analogy or that metaphor because it super serves a particular audience. HBO Max is the only one of these new services that is similarly trying to be all things to all people. And they also have a wide array of programming right from the get go. Yeah, HBO Max combines what you already get with HBO, so library of Sopranos, Game of Thrones, new shows like. The Watchmen and the Catherine the Great show that's just come out, as well as then you're going to fold in other programming from across what was once Time Warner, now Warner Media, and all part of the phone company AT and T. That is that includes movies from Warner Brothers, so that's Aquaman,、uh, Harry Potter, all things like that. That includes Cartoon Network. That includes documentaries from CNN. That includes the Warner some projects from the Warner Brothers TV library, which is the largest independent studio in Hollywood. So you're talking about Friends. You're talking about the Big Bang. Theory. I mean, there's just so much content、right. out there. But the question is, are people willing to pay for four, maybe five streaming services、mm-hmm. to get to that content? I mean, is there room for everyone here? There's room for a lot of them. If it's everybody, I'm not sure. You know, most research suggests, or when I when I talked with John Stanky, who's overseeing HBO Max for AT and T, their research suggested at least that people are going to spend about a hundred dollars on TV. Some people are still paying for traditional cable. In fact, a lot of people are still paying for cable or satellite. The number is kind of in the 80 million range, maybe a little higher. That will continue to go down, but you still have a lot of people who want news, sports. But let's say people will pay for three or four services, maybe five if they have a lot of disposable income. That probably means Netflix, which is just built in, Amazon, which barely even counts in this, and then they'll probably add on a couple of others. So maybe that's Hulu with a Disney Plus. Those two can be sold together. Maybe it's HBO Max. It's hard to see every single one of these services knocking it out of the park. Well, let's talk about two、um, that we haven't talked too much about, and that's Apple. Let's talk about them, and let's also talk about Comcast, Peacock. Start with Apple because they don't have a ton of programming、um, from、uh, the first day out, but they also do have a lot of subscribers already and people using Apple devices. Yeah, Apple is the the most unusual in that they are not. If you are going to pay for TV Plus, which is the paid version of their service, you are only getting a handful of original series. I think they'll have a half a dozen on launch day.、Uh, you know, let's say they have a dozen by the end of the year. But most every every one of these other services is going to have originals as the thing to bring you in, and then thousands of other titles that can satisfy you in between. Apple will not have that. But what Apple does have as an advantage is the largest kind of. Largest customer base almost from scratch because you're going to get Apple TV Plus for free for a year anytime you buy an Apple device. Apple sells 200 million devices in a year, so let's say a fifth, a quarter of those people keep it after one year. Apple is automatically one of the biggest online TV networks in the world. Comcast Peacock is a is a different proposition. Comcast is the largest cable provider in the U.S. and they're giving again customers. Peacock for free if they are a pay TV customer seems a little counterintuitive since、yeah. the whole point of a lot of these SVOD services is for people who don't want cable. Right. But I don't know. I think it's unclear what the, the full Comcast strategy is here. That's Lucas Shaw. He's our go-to person when it comes to media and content. We caught up with him in Los Angeles. Get ready, everybody, because there's a lot of new streaming services. Could be great for the consumer. 
all coming in 2020. And for a look at the year ahead in politics and also Trump's scariest political opponent, let's turn to Josh Green. He joins us now from our Washington bureau. So let's talk about it. What is it that uh, President Trump really needs to be worried about, Josh, when it comes to reelection? Well, what he needs to worry about is the fact that the economy, uh, by most forecasts, is trending in the wrong direction. And in particular, manufacturing is trending in the wrong direction in a recession. That is key in the group of swing states in the upper Midwest that are probably going to decide the next election. Yeah, the demographics, the geographics, all are really important here. But when Trump considers that, is it too late for him to change the game, even if he were to ink a trade deal with China, say, are we too far gone, too much damage done? Well, I, I don't think so necessarily. I mean, the way I think about this, I break this into, into two lanes. If you look at what Trump promised coming in during his first year uh, as president, he promised four, five or even six percent growth across the economy. That's not going to happen. Uh, on the other hand, he, he has had some positives. Unemployment is at a 50 year low. Uh, the stock market hasn't moved up a lot, but it's, tr- it's sort of treading water near all-time highs, and he's managed to keep Republican sentiment behind him even as he faces a slowing economy and impeachment. Uh, I think the big unknown in the people that I spoke to for this story was what are the effects of the trade war going to be going forward? We're now seeing them bite into growth, bite into the economy, uh, hurt state economies in states that Trump needs to win. Uh, However, there is still time to strike at least a modest trade deal with China. And I think if he were to do that, that could turn sentiment around in a way that would certainly benefit his reelection choices. Yeah, Josh, what I love about it is you do break it down into kind of what happened right after he came into the White House and you did see manufacturing jobs coming back. There was a lot of momentum. The tax cut certainly had an impact. But in the last year or so, you've seen that kind of shift. And as you say, those key states that he won uh, last time around, um, it's gotten tougher in terms of some of the manufacturing jobs and some of those stories. That's right. If you, if you go back and look at his term from kind of a macro level, it's really interesting. Trump delivered in his first 18 months, two years. You had the stock market going up. You had manufacturing job growing. Uh, as Jamie Dimon said in 2016, Trump had really succeeded in unleashing animal spirits, partly because of his tax cut. Uh, the problem for Trump is that all that has stalled out in large part due to the trade war that he started. So you have uh, animal spirits have gone away, companies aren't investing, we are now in a manufacturing recession, and that has hurt the economies in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where uh, recent polls show all of the top Democrats, Biden, Warren, Sanders, beating Trump in a head-to-head matchup. That is a flashing red warning signal for Trump as he looks ahead to the election. But again, there are bright spots. Mm -hmm. He's still got time to to turn the ship around uh, and, and pull another upset. But let's talk more about polling and where exactly voters stand as to what kind of job they think the president has done. Are they still behind him? Do they still approve? Trump's approval has been remarkably consistent in about the 40 to 43 percent approval, uh, you know, 52 to 56 percent disapproval. That's been true throughout everything, through the Mueller investigation and now the impeachment drama. He has managed to keep, most importantly, he's managed to keep Republican voters pretty much behind him. He's got a solid 90 percent approval rating. So as of now, his voters aren't abandoning him. As we saw in 2016, uh, the Electoral College 
college, I think, favors a Republican candidate like Trump. Um, th there are areas where he has to worry. He has lost enormous amounts of support uh, among non-college white women who were instrumental to his coalition in 2016. Uh, he is driving away voters in the suburbs who I think are going to be really important in 2020. Uh, but on the other hand, he's brought new people into the political process. So his campaign believes that they can excite voters who don't usually vote, who like Trump, who likes that he fights, likes what he stands for. It will be a test of whether he can turn out enough Republican voters in 2020 to, under, uh, to overcome what is undoubtedly going to be a blue wave of Democrats. But your story, Josh, a reminder, with everything that's going on globally as well in the U.S. and down in Washington, we've seen this in past elections before, yeah. it is truly yeah. ultimately about the economy and how everybody feels come the next election. It really is. If you look at the three presidents in the 20th century who lost their re-election races, all three of them were running uh, in a recession and it cost them the election. Trump isn't there yet, but all forecasts show that things are trending in a bad direction. That's Josh Green. We caught up with him from Washington. And just a reminder that when it comes down to it, when everybody goes to the polls come next November, it's all about how good you feel about your job, your economic prospects. It's all about the economy. Concerns about companies becoming too big and too dominant might bring about the great antitrust reawakening. Joe knows Sarah always gets us thinking, and he does that again with his article this week. I said to you before we got started, this is why I love reading your columns. You remind us of what happened in the past, bring in some history. So tell us about the great antitrust reawakening. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about coming out of an antitrust slumber, really. Um, the last time uh, the Department of Justice really went after a company, tried to break it up, was Microsoft 20 years ago. And since then, and even before then, the, the antitrust have been evolving into this thing where if, if, it, if it didn't harm the consumer, if it didn't push up prices, mm -hmm. The country said, the, the legal profession and the court said, it's okay. So now you've got Google, you've got Facebook, you've got Amazon, you've got other tech companies, and you have all this consolidation that's taken place. And people are saying, well, you can't use the consumer welfare standard for big tech because people are getting everything for free. Right. And that's different. Right. It, and that doesn't really get at, get at its power and what it can do and what we should do about it. And so there's this whole movement, um, a lot of young economists, but others as well, who are saying, we need to start thinking about antitrust in a different way. We need to kind of go back to the way we thought about it in the 30s and 40s, where just bigness alone was a problem. And we need to come up with a different set of solutions. But why is now the moment? Why 2020? Why is this the year of the Great Reawakening on this? Well, I think there's two reasons. Um, one, one, I think, is the growing awareness of income inequality. And I know that may sound strange, but if you think about airlines, there used to be 20 airlines, now there's four. And that gives them incredible pricing power, and it gives them incredible power over the labor force. So a lot of people are thinking, you know, maybe this had something to do with income inequality. The second reason has to do with all the problems Facebook in particular has had, the privacy problems, the data problems, Cambridge Analytica, the election. Uh, David Cicilline, who's the head of the House Antitrust Subcommittee, told me specifically he'd been thinking about these issues, but when Cambridge Analytica came on, that the light bulb went on and said, you know, I'm in a position to do something. I got to do something. Yeah, because it's interesting. Like, I love the history that, you know, you remind us that government used to be suspicious of big companies, right? They were constantly right. on the watch. And then it kind of changed right. with that thinking about, okay, are consumers harmed? G GM used to say internally, we can't have market share over 40%. 
Because if we have market share over 40%, the government's going to come after us and they'll try to break us up. And so we have to keep our market share contained. Right. You know, Microsoft at its peak with Windows, they had a market share of 98%. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You know? Well, talk to us a little bit about the Microsoft case and remind us because ultimately they lost initially. Right. And they were supposed to be broken up. That's right. The, 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 The trial court judge who got very angry at Microsoft many times during that trial. Believe you me, I was there. Uh, he de- he definitely concluded it should be broken up. Uh, the Windows part of the company should be uh, one company, and the uh, applications part, Word, you know, Microsoft Word, and all that should be a different company. But um, he made a fatal mistake, which is that he was talking to the press behind the scenes the whole time. And uh, when that came out, it gave the appeals court uh, uh, grounds to overturn his his verdict. Right. And so the appeals court overturned it. And then the Bush uh, administration came along and settled in a way that was, you know, slap on the wrist, but but nothing too heavy. But Joe, what's significant about this is that you say Microsoft became a different company as a result. Right. Microsoft was chastened by the trial. You know, watching Bill Gates on on on. His deposition, I don't know if you remember where, you know, you know, it depends on what I define the and that. And it was, it was awful. Right. They really became chastened. They wanted to be viewed as good corporate citizens again. And they realized that if they use the same techniques, i.e. using Windows to squash a potential competitor, the government would go after them again. So they stopped doing that. And let's remind everybody, it was about Netscape, right? No. No, no. Yeah. What was the, what was the, wasn't it? What yeah, it was, was Netscape. Netscape. I was going to say Napster. No, it was Netscape. Yes, <laughs> it was Netscape, yes, right? Yeah. It's not really around. <laughs> no, Net, Netscape is gone. But, but Explorer, the Microsoft browser, is not the dominant browser. That's true. There's Google, Google Chrome. There's, right. There's, there's the Safari. There's other, other browsers. So the key thing is that because Microsoft was constrained, because it no longer could flex its muscles the way it used to, that really led to companies like Google and Facebook being able to rise mm. because they didn't have to worry about this giant up in Redmond, Washington, squashing them. Okay, well, now they have to worry about not not that on that side, but right. now the part, the potential of them possibly getting broken up. And you kind of alluded to how this has become an issue in 2020. Democrats are focused on this, but is there kind of a bipartisan consensus that something needs to happen with these giants? Well, and I feel like Democrats and Republicans right. are both focused on it. Well, if you, uh, <laughs> excuse me, the new senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley, has been uh, incredibly outspoken about uh, the wrongs, what's, what's wrong with, the, with, with big tech. So that's one example. A lot of conservatives are concerned beating up on big tech because they think it's biased against conservatives. I don't really believe that. But it, 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 it puts them of a mind to do something. I told you, you always give us things to think about, especially as we go into 2020, because this will be a major issue. It totally is going to be a big issue. Washington campaign trail. So um, certainly something to uh, think about big time. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Kaylee Lines and I caught up with Matt Townsend about how the U.S. economy is being supported by the U.S. consumer. Matt says 2020, it will be no different. You know, the U.S. economy has always relied on consumer spending as a big chunk of the economy. Uh, you know, one interesting, interesting stat is 70% of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. In China, it's 40%. So that wow. just shows you how different it is. Right. Um, but now the U.S. economy is relying on consumers even more so because things like manufacturing are actually technically in contraction right now. They're cutting jobs, less output. So it's the U.S. consumer, and that's what's propping up the economy right now. So. Is the consumer feeling good still to this point? They are. And that's you know one of the sort of uh, counterintuitive aspects of the story is that broadly economists at the big banks, you know Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they do not see a recession coming next year. 
Um, the few bears on the case that sort of see one coming, they're basically pointing to consumers being hurt by some job losses and maybe slow down spending. But as of now, I mean, the, the sort of broadly speaking, economists do not see recession coming and largely because the U.S. consumer is so strong. Well, that's what I love about your story, Matt, is that you go through a bunch of the economic data points. I mean, consumers are optimistic, right? Yeah. I, uh, consumer confidence is, you know, re- relatively, you know, at the highest levels in a decade, you know, since before the recession. Um, Which is remarkable considering how long this expansion has gone on, right? Right. Longest on record. We hit that over the summer. And yet they're still optimistic. They're still optimistic. Um, you know, the data is showing more wage gains coming. You mm-hmm. know, there's there's a stat called, uh, a stat, if you look at a stat um, on job openings, you know, it's over 7 million people, over 7 million jobs are open right now. So what's that mean? I mean, there's a big demand for labor all across the economy and, and people are able to either negotiate raises or leave for better jobs where they get raises. That's raising wages um, and sort of lifting up, you know, the economic um, fortunes of, of America. And, you know, as long as that's happening, it's hard to see where this is going to change. Right. How do you get to a recession if you've got that going on? Right. Exactly. And, you know, some of the cracks in the armor, so to speak, are housing. So housing prices have them going up has been a big boon to consumer spending because people are spending a lot more on their homes. And just think about all the yeah. things that means you're buying furniture, you're hiring contractors, and that is slowing down. Home sales gains are home prices are decelerating. And it's because of lack of demand, not lack of supply? It, it depends on the market, okay. but they're, they're in some markets, like you know New York, for example, the concern is too much supply is driving down the, co- yeah, the prices. And um, you have more and more people renting rather than buying as well. Which right, is- exactly. Um, and then you know things like healthcare costs, if those keep going mm-hmm. up. If there's some sort of repeal of Ob- Obamacare, right? And all of a sudden people have to pay more out of pocket for health insurance. Think about the people on Obamacare. Those are sort of the people in middle income, low income. That could really stretch their wallets. Right. Um, and then, you know, job growth. Job growth, while still positive, has slowed down. So, you know, if you're a bearer on the U.S. consumer, you see that continue to slow down. Maybe mm-hmm. the effects of the trade war, uncertainty about the economy, freezes up hiring decisions. And you see job growth slowing and slowing and slowing. And that could, you know, create a sort of cycle of people worried about the economy and maybe cutting back on investment and spending. Well, and on those worries about the economy, I mean, we hear a lot here on Bloomberg from strategists talking about, are we talking ourselves into a recession? Are we entering a slowdown? Is the consumer starting to feel those jitters, the everyday person in America? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because consumer psychology is is obviously a big part of this. And if you think there's going to be a recession, do you take that big vacation? Do you put an addition on your house? Do you go out and buy a new car? No. Especially if you're worried about your job, if you're if you're a, work for a company or in a sector that is maybe under pressure, there's been other companies laying off people. Maybe your company's had lay, layoffs previously. That that could be what you know was quoted in the story as a self fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a recession. Therefore, a recession comes because consumers pull back. It's so funny that you know you look at the statistics about you know consumer optimism, but I feel like I have so many conversations with right. people who are like. I don't have enough money. Um, You know, it's really tight. I'm not getting wage increases or I'm worried about my job. Like you hear those conversations and yet you see the statistics come out in the data and it shows optimism. Yeah. There's something, yeah, there's something going on there where there's this dichotomy between what you you hear from your friends and anecdotes and and sort of what this data shows. Now, granted, consumer confidence isn't always necessarily the best Mm -hmm. metric to look at. Right. A lot of consumers 
maybe don't realize what's going on broadly in the economy or, you know, certain pockets of the, of the consumer world feel it differently. Well, and I thought it was interesting. You watch the markets. You talk about, you know, different stock sectors and their performance. You talked about in terms of consumer discretionary too, that you see some of the discount mm-hmm. retailers doing better when it yes. comes to consumer shopping. And that can show that what consumers are a little worried maybe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, what we saw in the, the Great Recession, right, was yeah. people trading down. So even trading down to dollar stores. So, right. So, so, you know, Target wasn't doing as well because people were trading down to dollar stores or Walmart. And, you know, the, uh, the, the opposite side of Walmart and Target doing well is they're doing well, but is it because more middle class, or upper middle class shoppers are shopping right. them, mm-hmm. buying clothes, necessities there instead of at department stores right. or, or higher end places? Right. So we're seeing a lot of weakness in those aspects of retail, sort of the middle of the road. Think about Gap. Mm-hmm. Think about, uh, you know, Victoria's Secret, things like that. Right. Where they're pure discretionary spending, right? Mm-hmm. And those things are actually are not doing quite so well. Well, and the pace of spending, this pace of spending growth, rather, of mm-hmm. course, is very important. Are there signs of it tapering down as we go into the holiday season and into 2020? Yeah. I mean, the last month of the report wasn't positive. I mean, it was sort of a negative surprise. So, but that's just one month. And, you know, there's, you know, potential variables there. That's Matt Townsend reminding us that the U.S. consumer is so important to the current economy, it's going to be even more so in 2020. We're in a new era on many levels, thanks to the pushback against globalization and the trade wars initiated by the U.S. One sector undergoing a great unwinding as a result is, of course, the chip sector, right? We see this big time. Austin Carr is here with more on the remapping of an industry. I mean, this is, I really do wonder if we're going to look back in time and say, okay, this was a bit, this was a, a moment in time in terms of the semiconductor industry. Absolutely. I mean, the crazy thing about the semiconductor and chip market is you just don't realize how embedded it is to every single device we use. I mean, whether that's Windows PCs, our iPhones, our Android tablets, all the little teeny parts that control memory and processing speed um, all come from a global set of partners. Most in Asia, mm-hmm. yet they power so many of the parts that we have here in the U.S. And so the, the big pivot, the big thing that we're focusing on in this Business Week story is whether or not there's going to be this great divide, great unwinding for a market that was heading toward more interconnectedness is now might be pulled apart and create sort of a great firewall between uh, China and, and the U.S. Yeah, well, okay, so they're in everything, but they aren't necessarily made everywhere. These things are heavily mm-hmm. concentrated. So can you kind of map that out for us? Totally. One of the things that we highlight in the story is this big IP lawsuit that's coming up uh, between Global Foundries, uh, which is a semiconductor foundry. And these guys are always suing. Always. Yeah, there, there's a back I mean, and forth. There, there's yeah. a lot of arguments about the legitimacy of these lawsuits. Right. But what they wanted to highlight, what they're really playing up in this and finding reception on is that not just that there's a growing uh, corporate consolidation of these parts, but also regional. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the company they're uh, suing uh, TSMC is based in Taiwan. Um, they, you know, according to Bloomberg intelligence data, they own about 74% of outsourced chip production. Uh, that means basically, you know, a company that designs a chip, but wants them to manufacture it. And that's massive. They, and, you know, t- uh, Global Foundries actually says for the more advanced chips, it's something like 90% of the market wow. share. Um, and so they're playing up the geopolitical concerns about this. Just how concerned should we be that, you know, basically our iPhones couldn't run if we got cut off from that market, from that manufacturer, from that region. That's what they, they keep they kept referring to this company as being from greater China, right. uh, although they are from Taiwan. But they want to play into those geopolitical fears about the U.S.-China trade war right now. Well, and we've seen that play out, right? Right. I mean, semiconductors have been a very volatile sector for mm-hmm. basically the duration of this 18-month-long trade war because every trade headline, you know, semiconductors are so vulnerable to that. And a lot of the conversation has been, okay, how do we then get the supply chains out of 
China. How do they really go about doing that? Where do they go? And can they really do that that quickly? It's complicated. I mean, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, one of the analysts that we had talked to just in terms of electronics manufacturing said the immediate impact would be about nearly a third of electronics manufacturing would move out of uh, China to places like but get your head around that, right? Vietnam, uh, uh, India, uh, uh, Taiwan, elsewhere, which is a really compelling, uh, you know, massive shift. Uh, the, the downside to that is that normally takes a couple quarters, if not years, to actually relocate some of those manufacturing centers. And also likely means that supply chain costs will go up. Component right. costs, depending on who you talk to, will, could go up quite materially, which have an impact on end customers. So this holiday season, you might not see prices raised, but you might see less discounts. That's one of the things I heard from from analysts, just because supply chain costs will go up. Uh, But the greater concern, I think, is just that some of these companies are just having to find new suppliers or even create their own supply chains. Uh, Huawei being the major example in China because of these sort of uh, corporate blacklists as well as tariffs that some people argue have been weaponized to a degree. Well, if you think about it, Huawei has been certainly a focal point for President Trump, right? And it's been really problematic for that company by having some of these bans put in place. And it really has created everyone kind of to rethink, okay, now maybe I need to be doing it in my backyard, basically. Yeah. I mean, I think there is something something healthy about creating more competition. I think you want that in the market. Right. At the same time, sort of this, you know, President Trump had tweeted uh, recently in August, just actually, I think a couple of days before the, the TSMC Global Foundries lawsuit, that he was hereby ordering U.S. companies to find, you know, new right. new companies from uh, manufacturers from China. It doesn't, you know, work that way. Of course, you can't just order U.S. tech companies to find uh, new suppliers, in part because this stuff is incredibly different. This is precision manufacturing. You need right. a h- high-skilled labor pool to actually do this stuff. Right. And then you actually need the the components, the supply, the silicon to, to manufacture it. One of the things I loved in your story is you said um, what would be kind of a really severe outcome, and I'm just going to take your words, a so-called silicon curtain of country-by-country restrictions which could split up chip suppliers between Eastern and Western companies. We can, can, can you know, constantly kind of talk about this, of the world being split in two, right? In terms of the U.S. and its allies, and then maybe China and its allies. And yeah. that we could see in terms of chip production. You know, it, what's interesting is, you know, you often think about those in sort of militaristic terms. Certainly, the technology that they might be developing for their military is divided up between Eastern and Western companies. But now you're talking about consumer yeah, products. You know, we, exactly. we have the, the so-called Great Firewall in China, where you traditionally thought of it as a software divide. You know, we use Facebook, they use WeChat. Um, you know, there, there's a very, uh, very strong divide between Alipay and Venmo, uh, let's say. But imagine bringing that to the hardware market where yeah, suddenly right. you can't actually get access to certain technology because it's only available in Asia, or you can't actually get access to some U.S. phones because they're only available in Western countries. And you wonder, I think that's the big fear. And you wonder what happens to like global innovation as right. a result of it. Th- that, that's, I think, the, you know, most of the analysts I talked to were not bullish about this. This wasn't like a healthy <laughs> thing that they thought overall. Yeah. They just thought it would slow the pace of innovation. Uh, one analyst actually told me that we could potentially paying more for devices that are actually worse in quality because we just don't have the best parts. And talk about the implications for 5G too, because mm-hmm. that's a big innovation we've all been waiting for uh, for it to come. But right. this can kind of set that back a bit. Absolutely. I mean, it, it also complicates it. This is actually, as most analysts I talked to told me, this was the one technology we finally agreed on. It was a universal standard. It's not like any other technology out there where we have different standards and different companies wanting to approach it. This was a universal thing. And, and we were heading in that direction and suddenly we're unwinding it. So now there might be different network suppliers. There already are for Huawei. They're developing their own. Uh, other companies, Unisoc, I think in China, is also developing their own mobile chipset to compete in 5G reportedly. And so that just, you know, it, whether or not it's a great unwinding or a divide, a silicon curtain, it is a great reshuffling, I guess, 
of the yeah. technology market. And is it too late? If we get some kind of trade war resolution, mm-hmm. this whole thing gets put to bed. Is this going to happen anyway? I, so far Trade as I've been station, it feels like. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that there's a, a longer term impacts. Both, um, you know, some of the analysts I talked to just say you can't settle this. The, the, yeah, the train has been put in motion. Um, but there's also other things at play, not just supply chain, but uh, talent pool. And when you start relocating supply mm-hmm. chains, um, you know, these things don't happen overnight. So if you start building, I mean, semiconductor facilities cost fifteen billion dollars to build. They take years and years and years to set up. So once you start putting this stuff in motion, I think uh, there's complications that just can't be uh, ended through one trade deal agreement. Well, that's reporter Austin Carr. We caught up with him in New York talking about the vulnerabilities being exposed because of the U.S.-China trade war and how it may be creating a remapping of the chip industry. It's been talked about and talked up for a long time. It's gone through a few iterations, cost a lot of money, and it is opening up this week. And Craig Giamona has followed the hopes and dreams, the trials and travails, and now the reality of the American dream. This story, I feel like it's its own little series. <laughs> it is. And I think everybody from this area, especially from New Jersey, has seen this yeah. thing for close to 20 years, right next to Giant Stadium. You know, the ski slope has been out there, multicolor on the highway. And it sounds like or seems like it's finally going to get open, which I think a lot of people never thought they'd see this day. I mean, Governor Christie knocked it going back years. Yeah, and financial, 20 years. Right. Financial crisis really threw this off the rails the first time around. And now here we are finally about ready to get it open. Well, and tell us more about what exactly it is. You mentioned a ski slope, but there's also a Nickelodeon theme part. What all does this project entail? You know, they're calling it basically a retail entertainment complex. I think it's something like 55% entertainment, 45% retail. I mean, it's a mall, right? But it, it's a lot more than a mall in the traditional sense. I mean, you've got all your stores. There's going to be luxury stores like Hermes and Saks Fifth Avenue. Avenue. It's definitely high end though, right? Definitely high end. Yeah. But you know, they also talk about Forever 21. So it's mm-hmm. got sort of the standard go-to mall stores you would expect. There's a lot of dining, a 20 restaurant dining terrace. And then there's all this other stuff, the water park, the hockey rink, the ski slope. It's all opening kind of in phases. But, you know, you hear a lot about experiential retail, right? Like yeah. the retail mm-hmm. apocalypse. Nobody wants to shop at right. stores anymore. People want to shop online. It's much more convenient. The, the argument has been that people will come out for something to do. They want to see the theme park. So are they going to shop at the Gap? I mean, maybe not, but they mm-hmm. might walk by the Gap on the way to the water park or a restaurant or whatever else it is, assuming they can get there and are willing to deal with the traffic in northern New Jersey. It's a retail story. It's an entertainment story. It's an investment story. There's so many real estate stories. Like, there's so many moving parts to this. Who's the... Who are the investors behind it? Let's get there. Right. So basically, uh, a company called Triple Five Group, which is out of Canada, took this over in 2011. They're the ones that really have gotten this over the finish line. It's controlled by the Gramesian family. They're billionaires. This is the family business. It's been around forever. But they weren't in there initially, were they? They were not. They took this over in 2011. The big thing that they did was they got a $1.7 billion construction loan from JP Morgan and some other people. And, you know, they have about $3 billion, north of $3 billion into the project. The total is something like five. But basically, Mm -hmm. they have... Roughly three or so on the line here and basically betting on the future of malls. And one of the interesting interesting things is that they also happen to own Mall of America right. and the West Edmonton Mall, which I think are the two largest malls in North America. Right. And they have put up 49% stake in each of those as collateral for the construction loan on this project. That's a lot on the line. It is. Them. And the reason why this came out is because officials up in Minnesota, where Mall of America is, they found out basically because they're working on a water park with these guys next to Mall of America. Mm-hmm. And as part of the public disclosure process, these loan documents came out. But interesting bet that they've made putting up a big stake in their existing properties on this new mall project. 
is it going to work? There's some skepticism for sure about the willingness of New Yorkers to get mm-hmm. on a bus at Port Authority and go over to the Meadowlands on a Saturday. Right. You know, are tourists going to do this? I certainly think people will go to see it. The traffic over there is bad. Anybody that's gone to a Jets or a Giants game or a concert mm-hmm. at MetLife Stadium knows it's not the easiest place to get to. It's like five miles from the Lincoln Tunnel. That five miles can take two hours if it's the wrong time of day. You know, if it's the middle right. of the night, it's a 15-minute drive. So how this all works on the transportation end of things will be interesting. They're really not doing anything besides special buses to get people there. So it's really a bet on the willingness of people to go over there and check out these crazy attractions that they built. And and they're betting four mil, 40 million people will go over there a year. They are. That they're seems saying, like a high number. It does. They're saying 40 million people annually. Look, I mean, New Jersey has a bunch of malls in Bergen County and that part of the state, some of the most traffic-clogged roads in the nation. So I think it's it's wait and see. I think there's certainly a group of people that are going to go out there to take a look, right? Because mm-hmm. pe- people are like that. They see right. the novelty. And, and just, I can't. sort of emphasize enough how much of a thing this has been in northern New Jersey for so long. I grew up in northern New Jersey, and I have to say, it's funny, I was coming back from a trip this weekend, and we were like, okay, is there a giant game? Like, we think about it, no, constantly, because you don't want to be in that area, because you can just sit for hours to kind of move around. So I do wonder about the transportation part of this. It's a big big piece of it. Like I said, I think there's a lot of people that will go there certainly once to take a look. It's a new thing. Mm -hmm. It's the hot new story. Will they go back again and again? Are people going to make that their shopping destination? I mean, that remains to be seen. Because look, there's fewer and fewer reasons to shop at a store every day. It gets better and better shopping online. What they're saying is theme park, all these attractions are the thing that are going to bring people in. Well, I guess let's take an optimistic lens on it then. If it does attract 40 Mm -hmm. million visitors a year, is that a sign that this is now what it takes to drive foot traffic to traditional malls? That's certainly how people will look at it. Because, I mean, you hear a lot about the retail apocalypse, right? And there are certainly dying malls out there, but they're older malls. You know, luxury high-end malls have done pretty well. I mean, I've been out in Garden State Plaza Mm -hmm. the last couple Black Fridays, you know, reporting for the consumer team here at Bloomberg. It's crowded, right? I mean, those people, are they shopping at the Gap? Maybe not, but the Apple store is always packed. The Tesla store is packed. People are eating at the restaurant. So people still like to get out of the house, despite the fact that they might want to shop for their pants and their shirts online just because it's easier. But people do still want to do things. And in a large part of the country outside of New York City, people are still out in their cars on the weekends. So look, there's a chance for this to work. I think there's a lot of factors where people say, huh, I just wonder long term about the willingness of people to to drive over there. That's Craig Giamona talking to us about the trials and tribulations, if you will, about the American dream. It's been going on for decades. It's a retail story. It's a real estate story. There's so much to it. And folks, it's finally open. So in the year ahead issue, Hannah Elliott, who tracks all things high-end transportation for us uh, and is, of course, part of our pursuits team, sat down with Daimler's chief design officer, I lo- we always say she's got the best job because <laughs> she really agree. does. So tell us about who you talked with. So I spoke with Gordon Wagner, and he is a superstar in the car world for his designs. Of course, if you drive if you drive basically any Mercedes these days, the C class, the E class, the S class, all of the SUVs, uh, the AMG GT Mercedes, which is their su- sports car, he's designed all of those. Um, so he's been very influential at Mercedes. There for a long time? There since 1997. Wow. So long time okay. designer, but he's still pretty young. He's 51. Yeah. Um, and he is also the one that's been doing these crazy conceptual cars that you may have seen, like with Maybach. Um, mm-hmm. He's done, if you follow him on Instagram, it's great because he'll put up photos of like taxi drones that are like <laughs> flying devices that he's conceived, you know, that Possibly could happen, um, but I spoke with him and he's great. Well, talk to us yeah. a little bit about that because I thought that was interesting. I love concept cars because you do wonder about, okay, how much of this will 
ultimately be a reality. Yes. You kind of talked to him a little bit about that. Yeah, he's great to talk to because he looks like a very clean cut, you know, staunch type of German man. But he's a really open, free thinker. And he basically says, look... I'm already living in the future here and it's, you know, it's not going to happen next year, but within the next 20 years, we can certainly expect to see flying taxi drones. And actually, if you think about it, planes are already using autopilot technologies to fly most of the time. So actually auto autopilot self-driving vehicles are easier to do in the air than on the ground. Right. Because we already use that. So that's kind of exciting. Is he pretty convinced that that kind of infrastructure and development is going to keep pace with all of these ideas we've had? I mean, a lot of the like electric vehicles, mm-hmm. autopilot, as we've seen, it's been kind of slow rolling. Does he yes. expect that to accelerate? He he In the air, he says it's much easier. <laughs> I mean, he's really kind of out there. He says, look, it's easier to do in the air. The real thing um, is still consumer concerns about range anxiety. You know, that's still a real thing. Um, and then like legal issues, um, infrastructure in general, we have all the Technology. He says we have all the technology already. Basically, it's other things that are keeping us back, like consumer concerns, um, you know, legality issues, insurance things, um, the price of building infrastructure, that sort of thing. Yeah, I thought that was important because I think yeah. I feel like we've been talking about you need the infrastructure there to make this really ramp up, and we've been talking about it for years. But he's right; it's still yeah. not there. No, it's not there. I mean, it's nice to think about these things, of course, but when it really comes to like this year, next year, the following year. We're not going to see flying cars in the next five or 10 years. You know, it's it's there, it's happening and we can do it. Um, but there, a lot of other things need to catch up first. I want to shift gears a little bit to sustainability because you asked him point yes. late. Is sustainable <laughs> luxury an oxymoron? Yeah. What was his answer? He immediately was like, no, actually, the key of luxury is sustainability. He said, look, luxury is is being admired by society for any number of things, for your success, your intelligence, your wealth, whatever. Um, And part of that admiration requires the responsibility to society. And sustainability is how you show the responsibility, if that makes sense. Um, He basically says, look, if if luxury is going to continue, and it will, it has to go hand in hand with sustainability. Amazing. Yeah, I love it. Well, you always (laughs) take us to fun places and to see fun cars. Um, Hannah, thank you. Thanks. Uh, In the year ahead, look at luxury. James Tarmy checks out the galleries that are turning into museums. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) What's going on? Well, you know, you're not the only person to have that reaction. Um, In in Chelsea, uh, the New York neighborhood on the far west side of Manhattan, there are at least four different uh, for-profit art galleries that are at least the size of many mid-sized museums. And that's like 30,000 square feet. Like yeah. they at are least. huge. Easily, easily. Yeah, David Sverner uh, is actually planning a, uh, an exhibition space that has 50,000 square feet, which is the same amount of exhibition space that the Whitney has uh, a few blocks down. So these are massive buildings. So why is this happening? Well, there are a lot of different reasons. Um, Some people ascribe this sort of kind of constant competition with one another and a need to grow larger and larger and larger just in sort of needless uh, expansion. But there are actually major economic forces at play here. And the primary one actually doesn't have to do with the viewing public. It has to do with galleries, artists. So there are a finite number of blue chip artists out there and artists' estates out there. And galleries want those artists' estates to stick with them. And there's usually nothing binding them, these artists, to go with one gallery or another. So they're creating museum-quality spaces for these artists to induce them to stay. And it's not just about size. I mean, they're doing a lot of other things emulating museums beyond just 
you know, having really big spaces. That's exactly right. right? Exactly. So, you know, galleries have always put on shows that are in whatever way non-commercial. You know, they'll get loans from museums or private collections or foundations, and they'll do these pretty academic shows. They hire curators, they hire real art historians, and they put them on. But now that these galleries are growing larger and larger and larger, that means that they have more and more space to do these quite museum-quality exhibitions. Well, and it's interesting. I think I was going through the list. They have cafes, exhibition spaces, event schedules, curators, book publishing arms. Bars. Bars, <laughs> yeah. importantly. Yeah. yeah. The, and, you know, for instance, uh, Pace Gallery, which just opened a 75,000-square-foot gallery, massive, um, in Chelsea, um, has hired museum curators to put together public performance schedules um, that are taking place in this absolutely beautiful, natural, skylit space um, where anyone can go. And that is what a museum does. So help me out here, because I was thinking about when I read this, I mean, massive spaces, it's expensive real estate. I mean, is it financially? I mean, they're in a business, right? A gallery. Are they? Is it financially paying off for them? It seems to. Um, Because they wouldn't be doing it, right? Well, they wouldn't be doing it, but they might be doing it as a loss leader. You know, we don't actually have, these are private enterprises, so we don't have a look at their books, so we can only speculate. What do they tell you that? So they, they say that it absolutely makes sense for their business because one, when they have hundreds of thousands of people coming through the door, it creates a buzz that you just can't buy otherwise. And collectors want to be part of whatever they perceive of as the zeitgeist. And if you have lines of people going down the block, but you're ushered in and invited to see this thing that everyone's desperate to see, obviously that has an impact on the perception that right. these works Cache, are valuable. Right, exactly. Yeah. So are the galleries the big winners here, or is it just art lovers? Because you can get into these galleries for free, unlike a lot of museums. Well, that's the excellent point. So museums... Well are, done, Kayla. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but it's true, though. Museums yeah. cost $25 a ticket. Yeah. And that means a family of four, let's say a, a, a couple with two 18-year-old kids... That family's going to be paying $100 to see art at the Whitney, as opposed to anyone and whoever they want can just waltz in. It's a free art viewing experience. And that's why Chelsea and all of these galleries in London and Los Angeles, anywhere, that's why they're all so wonderful, because you get to have these totally gratis art experiences. But now that these museums are actually rivaling mid-sized, now that these galleries are rivaling mid-sized museums, now you're having a free museum experience. And so quite right. Everyone benefits except possibly the competition, which is to say museums themselves. So what, I mean, are you hearing any kind of rumblings from the museums um, in terms of, you know, they've got to be watching this? They they are, you know, there's certainly a level of skepticism. And I say this only anecdotally. I, you know, haven't had official comment from any museum representatives. Um, I will say that museums and galleries have an extremely symbiotic relationship. Um, Museums oftentimes rely on galleries to partially fund the shows of contemporary artists. So um, it's certainly not uh, clear-cut adversarial or clear-cut purely um, beneficial relationship. I got to say, one of my favorite things about New York has always been like wandering downtown and you just see- You never know what gallery you're going to stumble into. Or something, an event going on and you can, I mean, sometimes you can wander in, sometimes you have to be asked, but you know. Well, you know, that actually also hits on this very interesting question, which is to say how people 
feel when they're just coming in off the street. And for a very long time, art galleries felt pretty imposing, I would say, yeah. to the average uh, art lover who, or maybe person I'm who I'm an average art lover. Or maybe, maybe <laughs> even if you don't love art, yeah, maybe if right. you're just casually interested. There's, right. It's not necessarily a warm, fuzzy place. Right. And the other part of this growth of galleries is that they don't really want these massive buildings to be empty. They want people inside. And so... To that end, they're becoming much more user-friendly, really. Um, well, and I'm sure size for the person viewing the art also, because I've walked into galleries before. I'm the only person in there. I feel like I have to be quiet as a mouse. Yeah. And, and to your it's point, it's a little, a little bit, bit of an uncomfortable experience. And when mm-hmm. you're in more of a museum-type space with a lot of other people around you, I could see how that makes it a little bit more enticing. And that's what it should be. You know, yeah. art is approachable, or at least it should be approachable. And right. it should be something that you can engage with and have fun with and deal with. You know, a lot of this art is not meant to be imposing. And so, in a sense, this is potentially a very positive development for everyone. Well, especially if you're putting a bar in a gallery. I'm just saying it. <laughs> Sounds like a fun thing to do. Um, James Tarmy, you're always fun. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. I'm Carol Masser, along with Kaylee Lines. Thanks so much for joining us. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio with Jason Kelly and myself live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, check out our daily podcast for the ride home. Find it at iTunes, SoundCloud, and of course, at Bloomberg. Bloomberg.com. You can get this week's edition of the magazine that is on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.